Thanks, y'all. My name is uh, Fred. I get to be the lead pastor here, and, and welcome. Welcome. I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. We are going to be taking communion together at the end of the service, so if you didn't grab it on the way in, or if you're watching online, uh, grab the elements real quick and, and, and join us. There's, there's tables out there and the table right out there, so, so grab what you need. That's my wife that didn't grab it on the way in. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> oh, I love it, love it, love it, love it. All right, listen, here's what I hope happens today. All right, I hope it, I, 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 I pray uh, for a couple of things. One, um, I, I, for our time together, I want you to know and I want you to believe more truth about Jesus than you did when you walked in here. And here's why I say know and believe. Right, because I think there is this misconception, uh, maybe even a lie that floats around the church, that floats around not just our church, but, but I think in, in multiple churches, particularly in America and particularly in an educated uh, uh, city like we live in, and it's, and it's this, it's that, it's that information is transformation. Right? I think the misconception, I think the lie is the more I know, the more my life will change, right? The, the, the more I know about God, the more I will be transformed about God. And y'all, listen, knowledge and information is critically important, right? Like, like it, it really is. That's why we go to school. That's why, that's why you know, people that uh, pursue ministry go to seminary, pursue like, like formal education. But the question with knowledge is, is in information is what do we do with it is more important. Right? Do we believe it or do we just understand it? That's the, that's the question. And so my prayers for us today is that we not only know more about Jesus, know more about God and his promises, but that we actually believe them more when we leave this place than when we walked in. Because y'all, if that happens, then I know what I also pray for will also happen, that we will leave this place with more faith and trust in Jesus than when, we, than when we walked in. And the reason I say that is because I think there'll be parts of this message that seem very um, uh, knowledge. It'll be real easy for us to get stuck in our head, right? And I want this stuff to move down to our hearts today, too. And so, so with that in mind, I want to share a quote that I came across and, and I've heard it before. It's like one of, it's one of those quotes that's written in my Bible. So I heard somebody say it, but I didn't write down who said it. And I searched the Googles for it and couldn't find uh, who said it. So this goes to some unnamed pastor or teacher of God's word somewhere that I heard say this. And here's, here's what they, he or she, whatever, whoever, whoever he or she was, said this. Many nations reflect on what they have achieved, but Israel, Israel reflects on what they have survived. Right, like we have the Fourth of July for us, right, and so we celebrate the freedom we achieved from England, right, and so we celebrate that, yay, right. The nation of Israel has Passover, where they celebrate what God did to release them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and it's not just Egypt; 
Israel's history is full of oppression. It's full of, of them being conquered and, and occupied and them being, uh, them being forced to leave their homeland. It's, it's full of this kind of persecution. Like, listen to this. Okay, so in Genesis and Exodus, uh, the key uh, nation oppressing uh, and, and, and ruling over the nation of Israel is Egypt, right? In the book of Judges, like this is just one book in the Bible. In the book of Judges, we see these different nations conquer or, or, or oppress or rule over the nation of Israel. Uh, Philistine, Moab, Mesopotamia, Canaan, Midian, and Ammon. Right? After the book of Judges, the, the nation of Assyria uh, captures Israel and hauls them off to Babylon. In between the New Testament and the Old Testament, you have the Seleucid Empire that begins to rule over the nation of Israel. Now they, if I'm getting my history correct, it was after Alexander the Great, his empire divided into four different empires. And that's one of those empires that ruled over the nation of Israel. When the New Testament opens up, you've got the nation of Rome is occupying the nation of Israel, right? And that culminates after we have our New Testament written with, with, with Rome like utterly destroying the nation of Israel and it's reported that 600,000 Jewish men were killed in that, in that uh, war, right? Since, since, since then, in, in just our history, Right? Since the, 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 the writing of the Bible had finished, we know about Nazi Germany persecuting the nation of Israel. And under that oppression and persecution, six million Jews were killed for simply being Jewish. Right? 1948, the nation of Israel got some land again. They became a state. They became a country. And since then, they have been in constant war and battle with Palestine, right? And, and so if you've, if you've lost count, which I totally understand, I just listed 13 different nations, countries, empires, armies that Israel has survived. A, a quote that I did find for this little nation that carries on is from Mark Twain, of all people. He said this, he said, all things are mortal but the Jews. All other forces pass away, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Right? Here's, here's, the question is, what is Israel's secret? What is, what is their secret sauce? What do they have that other nations don't? Because here's what I find interesting. Out of those 13 uh, nations and countries and empires that I listed, most of them you can only find in a history book. The nation of Israel you can find on a map. And you can hop in a plane and fly there and land there. Right? This little country has survived when all these big empires have wasted away. And so what is, what is the secret sauce that they have to, to survive? Now today, we're going to be talking about persecution, right? Because that's, that's what that's called. And here's the deal. It's a term that I've heard in, 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 in church environments. It's a term that I've heard bounced around in our age uh, that it, it, it honestly is applied sometimes correctly and sometimes incorrectly. And so for the sake of today's message, I want to give a very simple definition for, for persecution. And persecution is this. It's to be subject 
to hostility or ill treatment because of religious beliefs. And, and if you notice, there's a few dots there because um, uh, there's also political beliefs. There's also, uh, uh, belie- there's also like people being persecuted because of the color of their skin. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But, but persecution is when anger and when words, even physical abuse, is directed at someone for our purposes today because of their faith. And here's why I'm saying because of our purposes today. Because there could be political reasons that people are persecuted. Right? We see that in the history of the world. Uh, people are persecuted uh, for the color of their skin and for their ethnicity. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on faith, and here's why. Um, <clears throat> one, <clears throat> because the gospel is something that we all share. Right? And it goes across borders of politics, across geographic borders. It goes, again, it goes across uh, borders of ethnicity, right? It is the, the, the supreme, it is the primary uh, reason people are persecuted. Here's what I mean by this. Our faith, now here's where I'm going to need a little interaction for you because I want to make sure we're all on the same page here before we continue, right? Our faith transcends our ethnicity, right? That's where you say amen. If you agree. If you don't, then keep your mouth closed, right? Because I want you lying in church. That's not the place, right? Our faith transcends our race, right? Right? Right, yes, amen. Thank you. All right. Let's test the water here. Our faith transcends our politics. Amen. All right, good. Because you see, I had a whole other sermon written <laughs> just in case we needed to derail here, right? But amen, our faith transcends all of those things. And for our purposes today, that's why we're focusing in on, on persecution uh, based on faith. And, 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 and here's where this term persecution uh, is, is a correct term, right? Like as followers of Jesus, when you're at school, right, and, and, and you're a Christian and people know you're a Christian and they know you're a Christian because maybe you don't go to the parties that other people go, goes to or when you're there you don't do what other people are doing. Like, like your life choices are different than other people's life choices because of your life-giving relationship with God through Jesus and it affects and, and seeps into areas of your life. And, and so your school, uh, when, when you're at school, it looks different than other kids and you might get made fun of, of that. That's a type of persecution. It's when, it's when, it's when uh, families sometimes, if, if a person says yes to Jesus, sometimes families, particularly depending on the religion that they have, sometimes families shun that person, even to the point of treating them as if they had never been born. That's persecution. Right? Where that term is used incorrectly is expecting special treatment because of your faith and not receiving it. Right? That's where it's used inc- incorrectly. Like, for example, as a church, we don't pay property tax on the property that we own, which is a great gift from the government. 
right? And we don't, we don't take it lightly. We don't take it for granted. We very much appreciate it. If there was someone I could write a thank you note to, I would. Uh, but I don't know who that person would be who made that decision. But, but it's okay. And, and, if, and if the government said that churches would need to pay property taxes, guess what? That's not persecution. Because other people that own land have to pay property tax. Right now, it's a gift to us. Now, if the government said churches were the only institution that would have to pay property tax, that would be persecution. But otherwise, it's a gift right now, and if the government chooses to take it away, that's their choice. Right? It's like when, when, when you're at school, right? And this would be an incorrect use of it. It's when you're at school and you've got a big assignment due on Thursday, but you've also got the, the high school growth group on Wednesday night. Right? And, and the teachers just drop this on you on Wednesday, just like they dropped it on everybody else in the class. And you go up to your teacher and say, hey, I need more extra time because I got this Bible study thing that I'm doing tonight. And he goes, you don't get extra time. You've got to turn it in the same time everybody else turns it in. And that's not persecution. That's your teacher keeping a level playing ground. If that teacher gives you extra time, that is a gift. It's not persecution. Right? Your job as a student is to do the work, plan ahead, stay up late, get up early, do whatever you need to do to get it, to get it done. So do we understand what is persecution and what is not persecution? Right? Now here's, here's why this is important, because, because the Bible has something to say about persecution that is persecution. And it is in Psalm 129, and you can go ahead and turn there, because what we're going to do is we're going to see Israel's secret sauce to surviving hundreds of years of persecution, and hopefully we'll see what we can learn about it and what we need to believe about it before we leave this place. Now, as we continue in Psalm 129... We're in the Psalms of Ascent, which was Israel's playlist as they traveled from the place they lived to the place they called home, right? And, and, and all of these different Psalms were seeing different aspects of stuff that they would run into on this journey, and persecution is a part of it. Because if you can imagine, if you were the, a, a Jewish person traveling through lands that weren't kind to Jewish people, you would face persecution as you went. And so this song was, was critically important. As we think about these empty chairs up here and what they represent, people that were praying for that are on this journey from the place they live to the place they call home to, to, to their relationship with God. As we think about ourselves sitting in these chairs, it becomes critically important that we understand what to do when we're persecuted because of our faith. And so I figure, why not go to the experts, right? The people who have done it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Look at verse 1. Psalm 129 verse 1 says this. It says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And so what this songwriter is doing is, is they're looking at the history of Israel and they're remembering when, when Israel was, was in, in Egypt and they were slaves in Egypt and, and, and when the nation was young. And when I say the nation was young, it's how the book of Genesis ends, right? You have this one family. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob and his 12 sons. You have Jacob's family heading off to the land of Egypt. That's where the book of Genesis closes, right? And then there's a 400-year gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of the next book, Exodus. And in that 400 years, that one family becomes a nation. 
in Egypt. And where you see Genesis, they're kind of chummy because Joseph is there and he's, and he's kind of a higher up and they've got this good relationship. By the time the book of Exodus opens up, the nation is now slaves. And that relationship has changed and now there's persecution. And here's, what, here's what's interesting. We can't assume that persecution stops the work of God because under the persecution of Egypt, while they were slaves, God's people went from a family to a nation. Right? And when I say slaves, I mean it was, we're going to see in a little bit, it was, it was called, we, saw it right, we see it right here, it's called affliction. For 400 years... They didn't get a day off. This is why God gave them the Sabbath afterwards. It's because for 400 years, I mean, imagine, like, like since before our country was born, imagine none of us having a day off, right? Imagine your parents not having a day off, your grandparents, great-grandparents having to work every day making bricks for someone else. That's what the nation of Israel started as. And then we have this as our, as our songwriter looks back. They say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say. And so, so, so the songwriter is looking to the past and saying, listen, affliction has been part of our history since the very beginning. But now when we have the present with this, we have a different perspective maybe than we had then. And so now I'm going to give you something to sing about, right? Israel doesn't just have a history of oppression, they also have this. Look at verse 2. It says, Greatly have they afflicted me from their youth, which, you know, sounds familiar, yet they have not prevailed against me. Now imagine being this person singing as you're walking down these ancient roads from, from wherever you live and, 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 and people uh, making fun of you and maybe even throwing stones at you as you walked by and you sing the song, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, Yet, yet they have not prevailed against me. So there was oppression, but there was also freedom, and there is also freedom. Those persecuting the nation of Israel didn't stay persecuting the nation of Israel. Look at verse 3 to see how it happens. Verse 3 says this, The plowers plowed upon my back, and they made their long furrows. Now here the songwriter Right, the songwriter pictures, pictures uh, whips and lashes given to the nation of Israel. They, they, they had to plow the fields and, and they had to do all this work. But, but what this songwriter is saying, not only did they do that, not only did we plow the fields, they plowed our backs. Right? And it is this, this, I would think, grotesque picture of what their oppression looked like. That their harsh treatment that they received at the hands of the Egyptians. Now a songwriter does something else. He looks back again and guess what he sees. Or, or guess what the songwriter sees when they look back. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this. It says, right, verse 3, because you kind of got to read it in, in context. It says, the plowers pl- plowed upon my back and they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. Now, righteous is a word that we tend not to use, except maybe when we are talking about God, which means sometimes I wonder if we understand the, the meaning of the word, what it means to be, to be righteous. The, the, the most simple way to think about it is righteous means right, <laughs> right? Like, like God is right. 
in, in his judgments. He's right in his promises. He's right in, in what he says. It means that God really is a good judge. When you think about going before a judge, you think about, I might not like what they have to say about what I did. Right? And, and depending on the judge you're in front of, there could be all kinds of reasons why they make the judgment that they make. Like if it's a bad judge, it's because somebody's putting money in their pockets to tell them what to judge, right? But if it's a good judge, you know that what they say is right. And this word righteous means that what God says is right because he is a good judge. He is always a right judge. There's never deceit in him. There's no bias. But it also means something else. It means that the judgments he makes, it means that what he says he will do. Right? He, 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 won't, he, he, won't, he won't go back on what he says, on what he, he promises. Now, remember when I talked about Abraham's family in Egypt, right? And heading off into, into, into uh, at the end, at the end of Genesis. Let me tell you what happened before this, at the kind of the beginning of Genesis. Abraham and God had this conversation, right? And in that conversation, God said these things to Abraham. He, he said to Abraham in this, in Genesis 12, it says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from the country, right? Go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And, put in parentheses, I will, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, here's the deal. This conversation between God and Abraham became foundational to how the nation of Israel saw themselves. That they saw themselves as having a God who cares about them and having a God who fights for them and having a God who when somebody oppresses them, it's God's job to deal with them. And so these promises from God, this conversation between God and Abraham became the, the, the foundation for Israel. That God's going to bless us so we can be a blessing to the nations around us. And for those who persecute us, God will deal with them. And this word righteous has its roots in this passage. This song, Psalm 129, has its roots in this passage. That God will do what he says he's going to do. And when we're oppressed by Egypt, even for 400 years, there is a day coming where God will make all things right. See, God's righteousness is based in him doing what he said he would do. And if God didn't do what he said he would do, he wouldn't be right. He wouldn't be righteous. But he has done and is doing what he said he would do. Because look at the rest of verse 4. It says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Right Now, the picture here is of this ancient plow okay so so picture this i think we have a picture of it um yes okay so so this is an ancient plow right they would take the cattle they would uh attach it to this plow that would make the 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 
rows in the, in the dirt. Um, and, you know, this one has the wood coming down, but sometimes there were like leather straps to the cow so they could steer them and, and, and tell them where to go. And what this songwriter pictures is that that plow is operational, but all of a sudden the straps are gone. All of a sudden, the handles are gone, and when that happens, the cattle are then set free, right? There is no more work because the cattle provide the work, and the person behind the plow provides the whips to get the cattle to do the work, right? And so you can see this image, if they were connected by cords holding them together, once those cords are gone, the cattle would be free, and the person behind the plow would be powerless instead of powerful, that they would be empty of their power. And Mark Twain, when he pondered what is the secret sauce of the immorality of the nation of Israel, the answer is simple. The answer is God is their secret sauce. That God, who keeps his promises, is their secret sauce. Now, the song has a warning for anybody that would try to persecute Israel. Now, you, you can imagine them as they're going from the place they live to the place they call home, getting a little louder at this point for the people to hear. Right for the people that are persecuting them to hear and for their own encouragement. It says this in verse 5. It says, May all who hate Zion. Zion is the place that God dwells. It's the home that they're going to. It's Jerusalem. It's Israel. It is God's presence. And that's from the place they live to the place they call home. And, they say, and they're saying, so anybody who hates God, listen up. It says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. And so the psalm writer here, like, like in, in the original Hebrew, this is what a commentator read, I don't know the original Hebrew, but he said these words are actually very angry words. Right? It's what, it's what your, your mom says when you've crossed that line and she needs a minute. It's what she says to you to get out of the room so, so everyone can calm down and come back together. Right? And dads do the same thing, right? But, 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 my mom is just the one that came to my mind, right? And it usually involved my middle name, right? When, when I was in trouble, uh, I was not Fred. I was Fred Neil Baker Jr., the whole thing, right? That's kind of what this is. It's, it's this image, right, of, 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 of this, this picture of the plow being broken, Right? The cords are gone, the cattle go free, and, and the plow, the person with the whip is left there powerless and confused, and so they better go home. They better get out of here. Right? This is what the songwriter prays and warns those who persecute God. You better go, and you better go back home right now, because one day your power to oppress will be shown as powerless. Right? It'll be shown as empty, and it'll be shown as useless. In other words, the songwriter is saying this, listen, either side with God or be on the wrong side. Look at verse 6. It says, let them be like the grass on the housetops uh, <clears throat> with which, uh, let's see, let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of the sheaves his arms. Right, And the image here is like grass growing on a roof. Oftentimes the, the roofs in the nation had some dirt on them and so grass would just randomly start growing. Uh, but of course it doesn't have enough soil to make root. And so when the grass comes up, the sun hits it and it just, it just fades away. Anybody, uh, maybe it's just me, but anybody got stuff growing in your gutters? Right? Now, you kind of leave it there because you know it's not going to, like, 
that little acorn isn't going to turn to a tree in my gutter. Now, I will say, I did have one that got very impressive in the gutter. There was more dirt in there than I thought, but eventually it dies because there's not what it needs to actually become a tree. And what this songwriter is saying is that when you attempt to persecute the people of God, that's what you are. You may look strong at the beginning, but eventually you're going to wither away. And then he says this in verse 8. It says, Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now what he does here, what the songwriter does here, is make a joke about it. Like it starts off with, with whips across our back, and then this last verse is Hebrew humor. Like if we were all ancient Jews, I would read that out loud, and y'all would be like, ha, 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 ooh, that's funny, right? But we're not. So we look at it, and we're like, what? What, what just happened here? But it's Hebrew humor. Now imagine being with your friends and family, right? You're all these ancient Hebrews traveling from the place you live to to Jerusalem to worship, and you get to this song about persecution and, and the enemy fleeing. And you get to the end, and you all have a good laugh. You see, in a society of farmers, it's crazy to think that that the grass on a rooftop would yield a harvest, right? You'd look at someone empty-handed and, and tell them, blessed are you from the Lord? That's, that's just crazy. For someone to think they can stop what God is doing with just a whip, with just oppression, with, with just slavery is crazy. You see, the point of this psalm is actually simple and very profound, that working against God won't work. Working against God won't work. And y'all, you know, church, hear me on this. Like, working against God didn't work for the nation of Israel because there are times in their history they worked against God too. That's kind of the point of the book of Judges where I listed off all those, all those oppressors to the book of Judges. Uh, one of the themes in the book of Judges is that they did what was right in their own eyes. And then God would send armies to, to discipline them and they would re- confess and repent and turn back to God. And see, the nation of Israel did that, and it didn't work for them. The, the, the nations that persecuted them did that, and it didn't work for them. It doesn't work for, for those who persecute followers of Jesus. And guess what? It doesn't work for us either as followers of Jesus. It doesn't work when we work against God. Because God's ways will prevail. Y'all, I can't pretend to know what God is doing in Russia and the Ukraine. Like I watch the news and, and, and what I do know is war is devastating. Always. I know oppression of any kind can't be allowed. But I also know this. The, there's a, a, a seminary there, a Baptist seminary in the Ukraine. And the president of that seminary said this. He said, the church will go underground. We've had that under the Soviet Union. The church did not forget what it means to be persecuted. We will rearrange, reorganize, and do what we always do. Preach the gospel. Like, that's a person who understands persecution. This Sunday morning, there were churches meeting in subway tunnels. Just to worship the Lord together. In the midst of explosions 
and bombshells going off. And do you know why they do that? Because they trust the Lord. Because they know that working against God doesn't work. And eventually, everything that's broken will be made right. You see, persecution will never stop the work of God. It just won't. Honestly, I'll tell you, as a pastor, I hate persecution. For what it does to the body of Christ, I kind of like it. Right? Because if you want to, to, to deepen your roots in Jesus, you go through a season of persecution. And like nature does this. It's, it's it, you know, um, a lot of times when Jesus taught, he taught about, about vineyards and vines and, and, and wine. And, and one, of the, one of the secrets, I heard somebody say this once, one of the secrets to, to good vines that make good wine is that they actually grow best in the rocky places where the roots have to work to get to the water. Those are the best most vibrant and most stable vines to make wine with, to, to make grape juice that turns into wine with. I think we are the same. Like there's something in us, and maybe it's just me, but there's something in us where we're a little bit afraid of persecution, right? Because y'all, listen, we got it good here, don't we? Right? Y'all get to make a tax deduction for what you give to this church, you know what a gift that is? We've got it good. One day, that may change. And when it does, church, our job isn't to respond in fear. Our job is to respond in faith. And why? Because our God is faithful to his word. Right? We might have to refocus what we do. We might have to reorganize what we do. We might, we might have to change how the gospel is preached, but we never change the gospel. Because persecution won't stop the gospel. Church, hear me. Persecution won't stop the work of God here, and it won't stop the work of God in you. And today, I want to give us space to believe this as we take communion together. Now, typically, when we take communion, you know, we have it up here, and y'all come up front, you get it. It's kind of this time of, of, of self-reflection before the Lord, and, and I set it up, and it just kind of leads in to the message, and, and we pray through the elements together, and that's really good, and we'll, we'll do that again. But today, I wanted to do something a little different. I want to give a space, right, to move our information about God to our hearts, to our beliefs in Jesus. And so, like I said, if you didn't grab communion, feel free to grab it. Grab it now, and as you're getting communion, um, I want to remind you of what communion is designed to do. Communion is designed uh, for those who have, has, who have said yes to Jesus to come together and celebrate what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. You know, Jesus told his followers, and here's why this is important. Here's, what, here's why it needs to be those who have said yes to Jesus, because what we're doing is we're showing that Jesus is our righteous God. Right, And so let me, let, let me say this, that, that Jesus told his followers that in him is life. 
right? He told generations of Jews that had made the journey from the place they lived to the place they called home that he was their home and he is their home, that he is Zion. And if he's true, right, that changes everything. And when we take this this cup and this cracker, we say that we believe that it's true. We believe that Jesus is our home. And we believe that he did what he said he was going to do. That through his death and resurrection, he paid the penalty for our sins. And he removed the power of them in our life. And the extra gift in all of this is that we now have this relationship with the king of the universe who meets us when we lay our heads down on our pillows at night, who meets us when we, wake our, when we wake up in the morning and he walks with us through our days because of what Jesus has done. He didn't just deal with our sins. He gave us life in him. And not just life for heaven, but life today. That's what this cup represents. And if you haven't said yes to that Jesus, then let today be the day you do that. Let today be the day you, you put your life into his hands. And maybe communion is, is the first step to show your commitment to Jesus. For those of us who have said yes to Jesus, listen, I know persecution will come our way. It may not be today. I hope not. Right? Probably not. Probably not tomorrow, but one day it will. And when that day comes, we rest in the fact that persecution won't stop the work of God. It won't stop it around the world, and it won't stop it in and through us. And, but for some of you, you do face persecution. You face it at school, right? Others make fun of you because you're a Christian, right? Maybe you're single and you're persecuted because you want to hold to a standard of biblical purity because it is an evidence of your faith that affects the relationships around you. And maybe those people around you don't understand that, and you get made fun of, right? Maybe you're persecuted at work. So for some of us, I understand persecution is real. For the rest of us, one day it will be real. It will be real. And so what do we do? We do what, what Israel did. We, we, we keep trusting in God. Because here's the deal. When you look at Israel's history, even when they went astray, there was always a remnant that trusted in God. There was always those who did. You see, growth in Jesus happens through persecution. And so what I want us to do is I want us to listen to these, to these words from the book of Hebrews, and then we will take communion together. Uh, we'll start with the cracker, so if you want to go ahead and open up that side, you can do that. This is from Hebrews. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, our promise is found in Jesus. He is the author of our faith, which means he knows the story from the beginning to the end. When J.K. Rowland wrote Harry Potter, she wrote the entire series because she had the last chapter in her head. And the entire, how many books, 18, how many books are in there, led to that one ending, right? 
Jesus, like she got that from Jesus. He knows the whole story. He is its author and he is our perfecter, which means he is the one that makes it happen. And he is our sustainer. And so when persecution comes, we can let him be our nourishment. And this communion pictures Jesus being the food that sustains us. And in him we live. You see, we don't give up. We endure with Jesus. Listen to this, and you can go ahead and open up the juice part. From the next verse in Hebrews, it says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful man, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You see, the last cup that Jesus drank in the Passover meal with his disciples was the cup of joy. And most, most people believe that's the cup that he holds up because the dinner's over at the end, and so it'd be this cup of joy. And I think if, if it's true, and if you believe me, that working against God doesn't work, then when persecution comes, we can have joy. We can do what this songwriter did and laugh at the end of it. We can laugh in the midst of it. This songwriter told a joke just a few verses before talking about oppression. That's what trusting God to do what only God can do gives you. It gives you joy in the midst of horrible circumstances. Last week we talked about happiness as a posture, and it's kneeled down, palms up, receiving from the Lord. And so church, instead of growing weary, right, we can trust. Right? We don't have to complain when persecution comes. Instead, we can consider Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Let me pray. Jesus, um, you are our righteous king. You are our promise keeper. You are the one that our faith, uh, uh, who, who is the author of it, who is the perfecter of it, it is all about you. And so in you, we trust. In Christ's name we pray, amen.